Hello, and welcome to the Breaking Over the Anxiety podcast. I am your host, the anxiety nutritionist, gut and hormonal health expert, yoga and meditation teacher, and cat mom, Taylor Jandro. And this podcast is designed to show you how to relieve and resolve your anxiety disorder through the powerful combination of food, lifestyle changes, targeted supplementation, gut and hormonal health optimization, nervous system regulation, yoga, meditation, mindset, lifestyle coaching, and more. Dr. Kaylee, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm so excited for this conversation. We are going to talk about root causes of kids and teens with anxiety. But before that, I just want to introduce you to my amazing community. So for those of you who do not know, and you will know after today, Dr. Kaylee is a licensed naturopathic doctor with a special passion for pediatrics and supporting the whole family in achieving optimal health through addressing the root cause of symptoms. Her therapeutic approach is integrative and utilizes evidence-based methods as she has training in both conventional and natural medicine modalities. As a mama herself to two little ones, she brings experience both as a professionally trained medical provider and a loving parent who raises young ones right alongside of you. She believes that true healing and health is mind, body, spirit. I couldn't agree more and involves so many factors that are unique to each individual. Ah, so great. I'm so excited because I cannot tell you how many mamas reach out to me in my DMs and they follow me not because they have anxiety, but because their children do. So their young ones, their teenage daughters, their teenage sons. And although I definitely have a, an understanding about why this might be happening, especially because I work with a lot of adults who've had anxiety since they were little or teenagers or for as long as they can remember. And I can kind of trace it back and be like, I think I know what was going on, but I don't have capacity at this time to expand my practice to children and teens as much as I would love to one day. And so I really wanted to have a resource that I could point all these concerned parents to. And I was like messaging you and trying to lock you down for a while. And we finally got it. So I'm super excited. Introduce yourself and then we'll dive into the root causes of anxiety in kids and teenagers. Yes. Thank you so much for having me on. I think this is such an important conversation and topic and I know you've probably seen the rise in anxiety in adults. And so that same rise has been happening in the child population as well. So I think this conversation is so, so, so needed. But I'm Dr. Kaylee Trombolo. I, as she introduced, I am a licensed naturopathic doctor. I live in Georgia in the States. Um, I do have a virtual practice and see people in person as well in Georgia. But I do primarily focus on this pediatric population and also supporting women and families and just making sure their whole family is healthy and how we can optimize because we'll, I'm sure we'll dive into this, but oftentimes the illnesses and diseases that show up in childhood start during pregnancy and prenatal care with moms. So there's so many factors that play a role in it. And I'm just really excited to dive in and kind of break those down for you guys today. Amazing. Okay. Well, let's get right into it. So 
For me, I would love to know actually what your definition of a root cause is first, then I'll share my definition. And then I want to share what I see in adults. And then I want to see if it's the same for kids and teenagers. (laughs) Yeah. So how would you define root causes? Root cause, let me see how I can make this like an easily absorbable concept around it. So there's many factors that contribute and like symptoms are just our body's way of telling us that something is wrong. And so a lot of things can cause symptoms. And so when I talk about finding the root cause, I'm trying to find essentially the disruption to true health. And that can be a bunch of different things, but a root cause to me is something that comes in and messes up your natural physiological mechanisms and flow and creates disease or contributes to symptoms that can lead to disease. I love that. I'm still flushing out, I think, the most succinct way to explain it. The way I kind of think about it is how far can you go back until you can't go back any further? So the most common example that I can think of is women who are experiencing hormonal imbalances Mm -hmm. and thinking that hormonal imbalances are the root causes, Mm -hmm. right? And they're not. They're symptoms. What caused the hormones to go out of balance in the first place. And it's kind of like we trace it back, we trace it back, we trace it back until we can't go back any further. Mm -hmm. And that's what disrupted your body's natural mechanisms to begin with and then created these symptoms. So when I'm working with my adult women with anxiety, the OG root causes when you can't go back any further and have created all the other symptoms they're experiencing. For me, that boils down to diet, Mm -hmm. lifestyle, stress, Mm -hmm. be that physical, mental, emotional, trauma, Mm -hmm. nutrient deficiencies, which are largely related to lifestyle, stress, trauma, and diet. But for some, yes, there could be some genetic snips mm-hmm. um, and gut health. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how much of that do you see playing a role with kids? Yeah. I mean, it's pretty much all the same. I think that the way I kind of label them as environmental stressors. And for children, this is obviously a little different than adults. Like this comes in with school, bullying, emotional state of the home, learned behavior from parents and people they're around often, caregivers, that kind of piece. For children, a lot of the world is new. And so a lot of the anxiety can, there's a, we can talk about the differentiation of normal between like normal stressors and normal anxiety because they're learning so much and so much of the world is new. And sometimes the unknown is intimidating and causes anxiety, but you know, those are really important things. Absolutely. The stress trauma piece. And I think we sometimes overlook that in kids because they're so young and so fresh and, you know, we don't always think like, oh, they had a traumatic experience, but there is a lot of stuff that for them can be trauma and create this trauma response and genetics. Absolutely. Nutritional deficiencies for sure. Gut health. Absolutely. I think we would be really bad functional providers if we didn't take a look at gut health. So all of those things absolutely play a role in childhood anxiety as well. So pretty much the same categories that you mentioned for adults. Okay. Let's go back to the beginning then and trace it to the beginning where the child is in utero. Baby is in utero. So what could be happening here Mm -hmm. that could, and I'm 
I'm probably going to not say this properly and I can't wait to hear your language around it. Cause I think language is very important, mm-hmm. um, but that might set them up for then developing anxiety later. Mm-hmm. And then we'll go to, okay, what's happening with kids and then what's happening with teenagers. And maybe let's kick it off by what you would say is the difference between normal anxiety, obviously not for babies who are in mommy's belly, but what is your definition of normal anxiety versus chronic anxiety or an anxiety disorder? Like at what point do we want, do the parents want to say, okay, we need to dive a little bit deeper here. This isn't normal childhood stress or anxieties. There is something body-based going on within the body that we need to be, that needs to be addressed. Yeah. Let's start there for sure. So stress and stressors, this can be good or bad, right? And so we are made to withstand a certain amount of stress when things come up. This is why we have the sympathetic nervous system, parasympathetic, we get sent into this fight or flight, our body learns how to build resilience to stressors in childhood. So stress and anxiety can be a normal part, especially for these new introductions. And, um, but the thing that makes it more of a concern is when it's not as situational, like when it's situational and certain things come up or new environments come up or sicknesses come up or your child goes through a phase where they're a little more fussy or a little bit more withdrawn, that can be still a part of that normal development. It's when the reaction becomes overblown or like very exaggerated or last for a long time, or you really notice that it's disrupting your child's daily rhythm and ability to carry out their daily routines and functions. So that's how you would tell the difference. And we can totally dive into more of the symptoms in a, in a second too. Um, that's how I would differentiate that. Now, a lot of these symptoms can look similar, like they can be normal symptoms, but again, it's when they become overblown. So a lot of symptoms you'll see in children that can be around anxiety are like irritability, um, hyperactivity, being really restless, throwing tantrums, you know, for example, in social situations, hiding behind the parents' legs, not wanting to talk to strangers. Um, Another one that comes up a lot is like anxiety around going to the bathroom. So when you're potty training, like that's a new experience. So they can be at at first really like anxious about it, not want to do it, be averse to doing that, withhold. Um, And then when it becomes more of an issue, we'll start seeing bigger symptoms like fatigue, difficulty concentrating, more anger, irritability, even aggression, trouble sleeping, not able to go to sleep, have no ability to self-regulate, self-soothe. Um, being really withdrawn, wanting to avoid social situations completely, not be around anybody else but their primary caregivers, throwing tantrums, restlessness, continually talking about fears, talking about their worries, especially once they become a little more verbal and older, um, wanting to spend a lot of time alone, um, having compulsive behaviors, catastrophic thinking, you know, talking about worst case scenarios all the time. And then some of the physical symptoms you'll see are like a complaining of stomach aches, especially more frequently having diarrhea, telling, saying they're nauseous, um, not wanting to eat, having headaches, talking about their heart beating fast, having shortness of breath, um, shaking, stuttering, sweating. So a lot of these symptoms that we can see in adults who have panic attacks and things as well. So those are along the spectrum of when it becomes a bigger issue in kids. Mm-hmm. 
So then when we talk about root cause and we go back to in utero, the biggest impact and everything's so interconnected. So I'm going to try to make this as succinct as possible. Genetics play a huge role. So if we have a mother who has uh, genetic mutations like the MTHFR, certain variations, and let's just say that she has been under stress or she's had a significant amount of trauma in her life and this has not been addressed, then she can be depleted of certain nutrients like these methylated vitamins that are needed to make neurotransmitters and that can ultimately impact baby in utero. The gut health is also another one that I'm really seeing a lot of and I have Unfortunately, what happens is that parents will bring their children in to see me and they're having major gut issues, but they're like six weeks old, eight months old, two years old, you know, like they're still very young. But the issue was that mom had significant history of gut issues. And so because her microbiome or her gut health was off, it impacted baby's uh, gut health and then is impacting them in their infancy and toddlerhood and then into a childhood and teen years as well quick question on this is this if the baby is born vaginally or c-section or just more common if baby is born vaginally it's both but if baby is born via c-section they are going to be more i hate to say the word negatively but more impacted because they missed out on getting the bacteria beneficial bacteria through going through the vaginal canal and I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, and it also could be different in Canada versus the U.S. because I'm in Canada. Um, the you can swab the ears, nose, and mouth, but only a midwife can do that. Like a OBGYN won't do that, or the delivery doctor won't do that. Like, say the baby is born C-section, and you want them to get that microbiome dose from the mom, they can swab. You heard of that? Uh, they can't. I don't think that that's super common practice here in the States. I learned about it in my, you know, holistic schooling. <laughs> so I was like, okay, mental note. If I ever have a baby and it needs to be C-section, I'm going to be like, yo, swab, <laughs> swab yeah. my vagina. That is totally an option. I, unfortunately, I don't think I've ever heard of that happening with anyone who's coming with a C-section baby here in the States. So Are midwives common there? They are becoming more common. Okay. Um, still not super common. And it's state by state, the regulations, like, you know, what their scope is and what they're allowed to do. And so, like. I think they're pretty common here, but the waiting lists are crazy. Yeah. Crazy long because I, and I could be wrong. I, cause I haven't looked into it cause I have no immediate plans to have my own children if ever. Um, but I have friends who've obviously gone through this um, and have talked about how crazy the wait lists are. I, I want to say they're covered here by our healthcare. I'm not 100% sure, but that would make sense why the waiting lists, I've heard like two years, which at that point, you've already had your baby. <laughs> totally, totally. Home birth midwives here, some insurances will cover them. And in some states, they can get some coverage for it. Uh, home birth midwives, usually you have to pay out of pocket for, especially in certain states. Um, certain birthing centers and hospitals have midwives on staff. And so they're a part of the birth team, but you're still under the care of an OB. So it's, it's like, it's super, it's super messy here. (laughs) I mean, it's a systemic problem, right? I say this all the time. Doctors are not the bad guys here. Um, they're getting all the blame, you know, cause they're the messengers, but they work for a system. 
And the issue is the system. (laughs) Okay. So interesting. So continue. I did not know that about the C-section maybe being even more at risk. And also just to preface this entire conversation, because I'm sure mothers who learn this or maybe are listening to this, like we don't want you beating yourself up and blaming yourself because you had no idea. It is not your fault. Totally. I say that all the time. I'm like, you, you should not even worry about what happened in the past because there's nothing you can do to change that. Yeah. So the best course of action is to start now moving forward. And the really, really cool thing about kids is that they're so resilient. So, so resilient. More than we are. Like they will, and I hate using the word heal because it implies broken. Yeah. So I prefer to use like rebalance or optimize or, you know, come into homeostasis if we want to get super techie, yeah. uh, technical they kids are going to do that faster than adults. Oh yeah. They bounce back. So if I use the term bounce back, they bounce back back. so (laughs) quickly. (laughs) So I think with anxiety, especially when there's genetic components and things like that, it is something that is managed for life essentially, you know, with lifestyle and diet and pieces like that. But kids, if you have early intervention, you make some of these small tweaks that we'll talk about at the end they will bounce back so fast and they can thrive. And so, you know, that was going to be my next question about genetics because a lot more emphasis is placed on genetics in the medical community. Yeah. Than I would like as yeah. a, and you agree, you're nodding your head um, because yes, obviously genetics are a piece of the puzzle. Nobody is uh, arguing that, but then there's this entire field of study epigenetics mm-hmm. <laughs> where like the literature is out there where we, we can't change our genes, but we can turn them on and off. Mm-hmm. Right. And what, and we can change how they are expressed. And the way we do that is through diet and lifestyle. So you said, you know, a lot of this might have to be managed if it is genetic managed across their whole lifespan. But what I'm understanding and correct me if I'm wrong is it, it could be managed in the sense that you need to pay a little bit more special attention to what's turning it on and off, but not managed in the sense that you're going to feel the repercussions of it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I think because this whole, especially MTHFR, like everyone's heard of MTHFR. People come to me all the time. They're like, I want you to test me for MTHFR. And I'm like, likelihood is that if you have these symptoms, like you probably have some variation of it. But it's I don't know. percent or something, right? Of the population, I last heard that stat. It's like 45 plus percent or something. I, I think I just read the statistic the most recent was that. Um, but it's like, and, and I say the term manage because unfortunately our modern lifestyle is what turns on these genes. Yeah. Or these genes. And so when I say manage, I really just mean like we just have to get back to living the way we were meant to live. Yeah. And so that's like food. Hey, hey, hey. I am quickly interrupting this episode because if you are like me and you are a visual learner, I wanted to let you know about my free one hour webinar class called the three secrets to natural anxiety banishment that walks you through, well, the three secrets to natural anxiety banishment, specifically how to optimize your digestive function, how to fix your gut, how to eat in a way that boosts natural neurotransmitter production and reduce inflammation, and how to bring your hormones back into balance. 
I love podcasts for listening to when I'm on walks or driving or cooking or cleaning. They inspire me and give me so many aha moments, but I am a visual learner. So I benefit the most when I can see the information presented in a clear and organized manner, like a slideshow. I don't really remember or retain information that well when it's just presented verbally, which is exactly what I have done for you in my three secrets to natural anxiety banishment training. And within that training, I share the top things that you need to be doing to optimize digestive function, boost neurotransmitter production, bring your hormones back into balance, all in a beautiful slideshow. So if you haven't watched that, hit the link in the show notes to get your copy of the three secrets to natural anxiety banishment free training emailed right to you. Okay, back to the episode. I'm so glad you said that because I have such a bone to pick with the word manage being in anxiety. Yeah. Like the narrative is that you can't ever eliminate your anxiety. You can't, you'll have it forever. You just have to learn to manage it. That's what I heard for years and years and years and not even manage it well. So it's not there. Yeah. You know, that's not the narrative. And so I have such a bone to pick with the word manage, but I love, and I haven't heard it explained that way. And so thank you yeah. for that. Manage just means get back to living the way we were meant to live before, unfortunately, our modern world made it a little bit more difficult. And now those of us who do, you know, chase or just who do try to shift our diet and lifestyle away from the modern world, we're like the weirdos. <laughs> totally. And I was, that was going to be my next point. And I'm sure you see us all a lot, but probably my biggest hurdle to overcome with dealing with these kinds of cases and working with these kinds of cases is that you have to go against the grain. Like you have to be the weirdos and stand out and do opposite things. And sometimes for a parent, it makes your, it's a little harder. It requires a little more conscious effort because the mainstream world is not built to support us in raising our children that way. For example, screens, cell phones, tablets. I see children's anxiety rise crazy when they have much more screen time. And as a parent myself, I know how easy it is to get a second to breathe or have some time to do chores or dishes or whatever by putting your kid in front of a TV screen, giving them their tablet. And so it's a hard habit to break and it's a hard thing to shift, but it is something that has a huge reward if you can make a minor shift there. And I'm not saying like eliminate completely. And I'm not saying that you can't have one or give your kid a phone at some point in time. I'm just saying if we can build healthier habits around that, then we can support them for life, you know, with a small shift like that. I was listening to a podcast just the other day and I'm so bad at remembering names. Like I would be the worst trivia partner ever because I don't remember names of anything unless I have repeated it a zillion times. Like the information's in my brain. Just don't ask me to tell you names. Yeah. <laughs> like name of that research study or name of that PhD person or whatever podcast, right? But anyway, 
is this woman highly educated, like the credentials behind her name were just insane. Um, Mm -hmm. And she was talking um, about, she said something that really stuck with me. The episode was on HRV. And she was talking about how this exposure, this 24 hour access to light and not only light, but blue light is the greatest like assault against our health right now because we haven't adapted. Mm -hmm. And she was like, that might happen one day because 24 hour light is relatively Mm newish. And like, how long does it take us to adapt a really long time? Like our brains are still in cavemen times, (laughs) right? With like our amygdala and all that stuff is still quite archaic, our lizard brain. And so she was like, maybe one day humans will adapt Mm -hmm. and our circadian rhythm might shift and then our hormones will shift. And then all the implications on our gut health and our nervous system and all of this stuff might shift, but we're not there now. We're nowhere near it. And I just thought, what an excellent way to explain it. Totally. Totally. Yeah. It's impacting our hormones. It's creating our nutrient deficiencies, our mental health. everything okay so other so is there anything else key points um that could be happening in your utero before we move on to kids (laughs) I think that the biggest the biggest I mean all of it impacts but let's just like hit it on the head so making sure that you're going if you have the capacity to and you know past children you're not able to we're not talking about that if you're planning on having more children as a a mom, a woman, you're able to support your nutrient levels and remineralize yourself. Make sure your nutrient stores are all built up. Make sure that you're optimizing your diet. Start there. If you have gut health issues and you have the capacity to work on your gut health for six months to a year before conceiving, do that. Um, genetic piece, you know, just lifestyle, like reducing toxin exposure, making sure you have healthy habits in your life. Like those, those ways will support your future child. If you're able to put in the effort and work on those before conceiving, if you're pregnant already and you're listening to this and there's, you have some of these symptoms, you can start with minor things. Like you can start working on things now, like talk to your provider about starting probiotics, talk about how you can support your gut health gently while being pregnant. Like all of these things will still have an impact positively on your child. And if you are about to give birth or recently given birth, we can talk about things that you can be mindful of and go ahead and look out for and start super early on. If your baby has colic, if your baby has, you know, weird stool patterns, if your baby starts having eczema, like all of these are signs of gut issues. So you can get ahead of it now instead of waiting until they're five years old and these things just continue to grow. So you can start wherever you are with making positive changes for your children. Thank you. That was amazing. Okay. Now let's fast forward to not a baby anymore but not a teenager preteen. Mm-hmm. What are some of the biggest things you see with that age group, which I realize is broad? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, kind of like school age children. So again, like we talked about, their whole world is new. So they're having new exposure. So really pay attention to your child. Like I always say, parents know your children better, like even better, better than doctors, better than any professional you're going to take them to see. Like, you know, your child best, you see your child most often. So really get curious, pay attention to them, 
if you have a gut feeling that something is abnormal or that your child's behavior is, is a result of something, follow that intuition, follow up with it. If a provider tells you it's nothing, get a second opinion, go to a different one, like make sure you feel heard and validated and supported and reaching out about those kinds of things. Um, if you do think it's something that's bigger then you know, I love homeopathy for anxiety in this age because it works at an energetic level for those kids. And so getting a constitutional remedy can be really helpful, especially if your child has like severe separation anxiety, they are, uh, have a lot of anticipatory anxiety. So if you're struggling, like they don't want to go to school every morning, it's like a big fight or a stress to even get them ready to go to school. They don't want to leave you. They're crying at the door. They want to hold on to your leg. Anytime they have a project or, um, an exam or like a, they have to stand up in front of the classroom. They're like really, really stressed out over this. Like homeopathy works amazing in these kinds of situations. So you can support them that way. Um, this is a big reason why I don't work with kids because I know that homeopathy is the way to go. And that is like a whole other, like I didn't learn that in school. That's a whole other training for yeah. me. And even with adults, I think it's fantastic. But mm-hmm. what I constantly hear from all my colleagues and peers and friends who work with children is mm-hmm. like homeopathy is so, so powerful, more so for children than it is for adults. It totally is. And for those who don't know what homeopathy is, it's a type of medicine that works on the basis of like cures like. So Hahnemann in the, I think, 1700s came up with this way of testing certain things. It's always hard to explain homeopathy, but say you take a plant, like belladonna is a really common remedy, and he basically like dilutes it down so much so that while belladonna can be really poisonous if you eat it crude form, in the homeopathic dilution of it, there's no more of the crude form, so it's not toxic in any capacity. So it's incredibly safe, but you still get the energetic healing from that substance. And so if your child is showing up in a way that is in line with how Belladonna would cure, it, it works to cure them from that or heal them from that or overcome whatever obstacle that is. So it's incredibly safe for infants, for pregnancy, for nursing, for children. Like it's this, one of the safest modalities out there. And it's so, 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 so highly effective for children. So I give every single child that comes to see me a constitutional remedy. And it, it's almost like the single-handed thing that like flips the switch for us and like gets things going in the right direction. So definitely extremely beneficial. And what like a powerful resource right there for any parents listening where seek out a provider who yes. is well-versed in homeopathy for children. Yes, yes. super helpful. Um, what other pieces? I mean, nutritionally across the board for kids, we got to get away from this intake of processed foods. Um, one of the big issues with a lot of processed foods is that they add in these synthetic vitamins that if we do have this genetic component, this is one of those like environmental factors that can switch those things on and off and create issues. Because if we're having a lot of intake of processed foods or synthetic vitamins, then our body's not able to turn them into the active form that we need to make neurotransmitters properly or heal or create cellular energy property properly. So it's a big issue and your kids are not getting the nutrients they need in the forms they need to thrive. So we got to go back to a whole foods based diet. 
And this can start with infancy when you're introducing foods to your kids. Um, like get away from the processed things, just like buy whole foods and start introducing meats and organ meats and sardines and avocado and, um, you know, whole vegetables, like introduce that bone broth to your kids. A lot of people are like, what? Like cereal's the first go-to for food introduction. But I'm like, no, we got to flip that switch. Like get away from that. We don't need fortified cereals. We need whole foods. <laughs> Hello, me again. Interrupting this episode just one last time because I really need to take a quick minute to invite you, if you're ready, to join Breaking Up With Anxiety, my four-month group coaching program for women who are ready to break up with their anxiety for good. By the end of our four months together, not only will you have completely rebalanced your gut, your hormones, and built a flexible nervous system, but you will have the tools and resources that you need to keep your anxiety away so it doesn't come creeping back down the road. Through simple dietary changes, my signature root cause specific gut and hormone supplement protocol, powerful stress management and nervous system regulation techniques, psychotherapy based workshops, and the support of myself and all your other breaking up with anxiety ladies, this is going to be the best goddamn breakup of your life. But in order to give each woman who joins the program the support she needs throughout the journey, there are always only 12 spots available for enrollment each month. And right now, there are a few spots left. When you break up with someone that isn't right for you, it's always a relief. Breaking up with your anxiety isn't just a relief. It's completely life-changing. If you are ready to show up for yourself, do the work and change your life, click the link in the show notes to sign up for Breaking Up With Anxiety today or head over to www.tejandro.com forward slash breaking dash up dash with dash anxiety. Okay, back to the episode. Yeah, that powder that you mix with water, I nannied for years, so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, question. What are your thoughts on picky eaters? <laughs> I'm doing air quotes because I actually have a friend and colleague, and that's her entire niche is helping parents with their children who are picky eaters. And, yeah. you know, a lot of her messaging around this, which I thought very interesting in the beginning, well, what I found very interesting because I used to nanny and the kids were quote unquote picky eaters sometimes. And she's like, a lot of it comes down to the parents. Totally. Like if the child is a picky eater, because that can be changed. But like you said, you know, near the beginning of this call, it's hard. And I actually have a colleague who switched from pediatrics mm -hmm. and she loved it, but she was like, it was so, it was harder than working with adults because it's like, you're working with the kid, but you're also working with the parents and yeah. they both have to kind of be on board. Yeah. Yeah. Taste buds actually start developing in utero. So Ooh. again, if mom had a super restrictive diet or didn't eat a lot of whole foods or, you know, had a particular way of eating, then babies taste buds are not going to be quite as diverse. So they will struggle a little bit more. Um, also, obviously, because if mom and dad aren't making foods or caregivers aren't making foods and providing it or presenting it to children, then they're not going to have that exposure. And so it can take 
up to even like 20 to 30 introductions of a certain food to an infant for them to acquire the taste for it. So a lot of people will give up way before that. And so um, picky eating can totally be worked on from day one and kind of prevented. When there are slightly older kids, like, you know, five plus, nutrient deficiencies can actually contribute to worse picky eating. So once they've become like deficient in certain minerals or nutrients, like zinc's a big one, it can actually make them averse to certain foods. And so then picky eating gets worse. So another reason to start super early on. And I always say this to parents. I'm like, variety is what we want. Like we want to get as much variety exposed to your kid as possible early on. And so I always give them like a list of foods and I'm like, every three days, I want you to introduce a new food and come back to me in four weeks and let's have like 25 new foods introduced. Like variety, variety, variety is king. And And patience. Yeah. And don't give, I mean, parenting is the ultimate test in patience, (laughs) but you can't give up as the parent. Yeah. You have to keep doing it and, and providing it. And some of the, I'm not like a picky eating expert, but some of the, um, nutritionists who really work on this they talk about always giving your child a safe food so if your child loves noodles or loves mac and cheese or loves you know whatever their safe food is always put their safe food on the plate but always introduce like something new like put something new on their plate and even if they don't touch it it doesn't have to be an argument it doesn't have to be a fight it doesn't have to be a struggle to force them to eat it you just want to put it on their plate and it's exposure therapy like give them exposure to it. And so that's a great way to start from like a behavioral component with getting your kid to eat more foods and overcome picky eating. Mm-hmm. Another great tip I heard from my friend was um, instead of teaching kids from an early age, like if you eat all your vegetables, you get a dessert. Or if you eat all your food, you get a dessert. Mm-hmm. If a des- if desserts are part of your household um, yep. or like let's say around Halloween or something when they get their candy, you yep. put it on the plate with all of their food. Like never even having that conversation about this is a reward because think about how that impacts us as adults and how we see food as a reward or comfort food and how that is conditioning from a young age. And again, this isn't to shame parents because this is what all parents are doing and we're all just learning from each other. We're like, help, (laughs) how do I do this, right? And so it's such a powerful time to... I have a client of mine who um, she was in my program years ago and she now has a baby girl and she's starting to eat solid foods. And the pediatrician, their pediatrician told them um, they don't eat any of the inflammatory foods, her or her husband, since working with me, obviously in moderation when they're out, they might have some stuff, but at home, what they shop and what they buy and what they cook with is gluten-free good quality dairy only, kind of used sparingly, Mm -hmm. none of those inflammatory oils, no corn and soy, like things like that. And the pediatrician was telling her that her daughter shouldn't eat like her and her daughter should be exposed to everything. So the gluten and the dairy and the corn and the soy to kind of prevent um, allergies or sensitivities later on down the road. And she sent me an email being like, what do you think about this? And I was like, well, listen, like I'm not an expert in children, but I don't see any benefit in feeding your child those inflammatory foods. I see actually a lot of benefit in teaching her. She's one, like yeah. teaching her now, having her eat like you, like what a powerful tool that is, like for her to grow up 
eating this way. Like I wasn't like, I didn't grow up like that. (laughs) You know, I had to completely change the way I ate at 25 and that was 25 years. And this isn't to blame my parents of eating in a way that aggravated my gut health, that created inflammation, that impacted my hormones, that impacted my nervous system. Right. What are your thoughts around that? I feel like nutrition is like, I feel like you could do a whole two hour episode on nutrition components, but I feel like there's so many aspects to this. Like a lot of millennials, like we're in the millennial stage of parenting, right? Millennials are having kids. And I feel like the eighties and nineties were such a horrible time for diet recommendations. And like our minds were warped. Our parents were made to believe that like fat was bad for us and you know, that we needed to Mm -hmm. eat like fortified foods. And so there's just so many aspects that are ingrained in us. And so then we almost like turn around and have to unwire that so that we feed our children differently. I don't like to make anyone, I don't, I don't like to put emphasis on villainizing any certain food groups. And like, there's a lot of talk in the functional world about certain food groups being bad, following certain very restrictive diets. And I think that when we focus on it being about restriction, it creates more of an issue. So I think that the emphasis should be placed more on enjoying nourishing whole foods. And like what you're talking about with the gluten-free and and dairy-free, even like not everyone is sensitive to dairy. I'm very much on like the raw milk train though. Like when we strip it of all its nutrients and then it's not available in Canada. It's like not legal here. (laughs) I mean, you can get it, but you have to like do it very discreetly. Yeah, totally. But I'm also on the exact same train. Like yeah. quality of dairy matters totally. and bioindividuality. Like I break out if I have too much dairy. I've tested it time yeah. and time and time again, and I just do. Is totally. it annoying? Yes. <laughs> I would say if anything, if we really break it down, if you just go back to like, we need to build awareness in our kids. We need to teach our kids how to be aware of how they feel when they eat foods. Be like, when you eat a bunch of sugar, do you feel good? Or when you eat a bunch of processed foods, do you feel good? Or does your tummy hurt? Or do you have diarrhea? Like when you eat a bunch of healthy foods, like how do you feel? You feel energized. You feel good. You feel like you can focus in school. You don't have diarrhea. This is a better conversation, I think, is to teach our kids like knowing food is inherently good or bad. It's just about how you feel and how your body responds to foods. And we do need to focus on more of a whole food intake. I couldn't agree more. And labeling food as good or bad attaches a morality to the food. And then when you eat that food, it attaches a morality to you. Yes. It's like, I'm bad because I ate that piece of cake. And that's not true at all. There's food for nourishment and there's food for pleasure. And life is a balance of nourishment and pleasure and, you know, our guilty pleasures in life. I don't even like using that. Like, why is it guilty? Like, why can't I just love my trash TV? (laughs) (laughs) or not even call it that reality TV, you know, like language. This is what I'm saying. Like the language that's ingrained in us, that subconsciously. Yeah. It's crazy. Okay. Let's move to uh, teenagers. Okay. Um, I think that the biggest aspect of teen anxiety is around this whole screen and this like massive exposure to the entire world of information and comparisons that was not ever an issue in the past. And so because they have more of this like cognitive development at this point, this bigger emotional awareness, um, hormones are also another piece because once we hit puberty, we also see an uptick in anxiety and 
children or teens who have hormone imbalances. So again, in childhood, if we have a lot of exposures to things that can disrupt hormones, then once they hit puberty, we'll see that uptick in anxiety. And usually this will come with other signs and symptoms too. There's something going on like really severe acne, uh, really severe disturbed sleep, um, things like those are kind of the biggest pieces in the team. Painful periods with girls. Yeah. Periods being irregular periods, heavy periods, severe cramping, um, clotting, things like that. Having to miss school a day for periods. That's a huge one for girls too. So I see that this exposure to the world, social media is like, I think one of the worst things that teens could have access to that's causing a lot, a lot of anxiety and these like pressures of the world to either perform or like, have a million followers on TikTok or Instagram, have straight A's to make it into Harvard or, you know, these stressors of the world become a bigger piece in teens. And so I think that as teens, the emphasis needs to be on like the foundational pieces hopefully are there, the nutrition, the sleep, the regular routine, but this like having tools for emotional regulation, having nervous system regulation exercises in place are so important in this like teen phase for me. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot of the same things that I talk about with adults. And so just like mindful breathing, using something like EFT tapping, emotional freedom technique, tapping to regulate that nervous system, having tools so that when you're triggered, because we're going to have triggers and it's not about like, we can't avoid all triggers in life. And so when your friends hurt your feelings or you have an exposure to something on TikTok that, you know, triggers your nervous system, hopefully as a teen, they have the tools where they can go and they can like step aside and do like one minute of some kind of regulating exercise to move through those emotions, not suppress them, not avoid them, not pretend like they're not there, not have them blow out of proportion, but regulate them, move through them, process them in a healthy way so that they can continue to move on with their daily life without it compounding over time. Mm -hmm. Speaking from personal experience, um, I think this is such a beautiful opportunity for mothers or fathers or parents to, if they don't have these tools, to learn these tools and mm -hmm. practice modeling them to their children. Mm -hmm. I love my mother to mm -hmm. death, but she was your classic martyr mother. She mm -hmm. is your classic martyr mother. And now as an adult, I'm always like, you need to take care of yourself and stop it. Because <laughs> she still does it, even though we're all adults. Um, and what was modeled to me growing up, like I learned how to handle stress based on my mom. And my mother was doing the best that she could. But everything I knew about handling stress only increased my stress. Mm -hmm. and only increased my nervous system dysregulation. And again, that's something I had to teach myself in my early 20s. And so be it. It's all good. That was just like my life journey. And there's so many lessons learned from that. But if, you know, anybody listening to this, if you don't have those tools or you know those are areas of opportunity for you to work on your stress resilience, your emotional resilience, your stress management, and then to practice that. Because first of all, your children are always watching you. Really? Yeah. And also just like what a great like thing to do together, like meditate together, practice your breathing together, go for walks together, do EFT tapping together, like oh, great bonding experiences too, right? Like with the parents and the children. 
That's such a great point. I'm so glad you said that because I think this is like what I talk about a lot with younger kids, but sometimes by teen years, like parents have become a little more disconnected from their teens. They either have these like super tight, like almost codependent style relationships or these almost like very detached relationships. And you almost feel like, well, they're older now. They can regulate themselves. Like I'm going to put more emphasis on the younger kids or whatever that looks like. But it is such a great time to come back to that like family unit and find these connection moments of connection because that's really what they're often missing. And so even just like putting phones down for like an hour in the afternoon and doing like games or doing eating dinner together at the table with no screens on, you know, like having these dedicated times going for walks as a family. Um, I always say moms, I'm like, you have to put yourself first because if you can't show up and heal yourself, you can't heal anybody else in your family. So definitely parents have to learn how to regulate themselves and model that for their kids and their teens for sure. So yes to everything you said for sure. Okay. I have a, a, a question that's um, kind of selfish. <laughs> it's not selfish. My girlfriend just asked me the other day and I was like, I do not know the answer, but Dr. Kaylee's coming on and I'm going to ask her and then we'll kind of wrap it up. Um, so I put a lot of emphasis on eating enough protein mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and Obviously, I know the equations for adults and therefore teenagers. Mm-hmm. How much protein should kids be having? Are there different like protein goals based on different age groups? Because my friend, her son is two. Mm-hmm. And I can't, she, she had read somewhere that he shouldn't have, and I can't remember exactly. Because again, worst trivia partner. <laughs> unless I'd have this conversation a million times. I want to say the number she heard was 50 grams. I could be wrong, but her son loves eggs and will eat so many eggs, but she's concerned that he's overeating protein. So, cause I feel like protein at any age is super important yeah, for mental health, for teenagers, for, for mothers who are carrying the child. I know for sure that's important in pregnancy mm-hmm. and your protein needs actually increase in pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So, Do you have those numbers? Yeah. So I do it by weight conversion. Like I don't do like a blanket statement, like 25 grams for kids. So I usually typically follow. And again, you're going to find so many different numbers. These are what I follow like for age group. uh, And I go by pounds, sorry, but like 0.6 to 0.8 grams of protein per pound weight, body weight. So you can kind of implement that for your child. And okay. So across the board. Interesting. So I used to use that number. Um, Wait, by pounds. Yeah, I think I go by, I go by pounds too. <laughs> so the number I go off for adults mm-hmm. is, you know, minimum one, one gram per mm-hmm. pound of like ideal body weight. Yeah. And then we can have a whole conversation about what ideal body weight means. Topic for another time. Yeah. Um, and sorry, you said 0.6 to 0.8 yeah. grams yeah. per pound. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's the equation that I used to use for mm-hmm. women. And then the research shifted a little bit more yeah a little bit to a little bit more so amazing so that equation was basically across the board <laughs> and i thought like i feel more comfortable closer to the 0.8 but i find that like so many people are under eating that even starting with that 0.6 especially for kids like i mean honestly most kids are coming in and their parents like i can only get them to eat carbs <laughs> so even yeah. starting with that like 0.6 gram per pound of body weight is going to probably significantly improve their protein intake um but that 0.6 to 0.8 for sure is what I like to follow for kids. Okay. Amazing. Thank you. I'm so glad that I asked that. Uh, okay. So 
wrapping up here, and I know this is such a hard question and there are never five things total, but what are your kind of top five start here tips? Because obviously we talked about so much today yeah. and I know that when I'm bombarded with, and I not even bombarded, what there's so much access to information right now. It does feel bombarding, <laughs> but what I'm uh, listening to a podcast, you know, that's an hour long. And I'm like, that was such a great conversation. And then I get to the end and I'm like, uh, okay, where do I start? Like, what were the action tasks? Like, what were the tips? So as much as I can remember, I try to ask my my guests to just give us your kind of top five start here kind of action steps somebody could take. Yeah, I think this is so great. I'm so glad that you put this out to ask this. So all of these are so easily implemented. Like they don't require a ton of resources. They don't require a ton of effort. Like these are things you can do today. So number one, (laughs) number one, I want, and I want these parents to do these with your kids. Like don't just have your kids do it. Like do them with your kids. This is a family affair. I want you to get outside more with your kids. So if you're not getting outside at all, like start with 10 minutes outside and the best time of day to do this, if you have the capacity to, is in the morning so that you're getting some natural sunlight exposure. You're helping with cortisol, which helps your stress hormone response. Just get outside, like set a timer, go outside for five minutes. If it's warm enough, like put your actual feet on the ground, like do some grounding, get time in nature. Most of us are not spending nearly enough time outside. Even in the wintertime, if it's if you're able to like bundle up and get outside, it's still going to be great to get that fresh air. So that's number one, spend more time outside. Number two is going to be to implement a daily stress management practice. This does not have to be an hour for people who follow like child-free influencers. They're like, I spend an hour journaling. I listen to a podcast. I go for a walk. I'm like, for parents, it's just unrealistic. So what I'm talking about is I'm talking about- I don't even have that time. Totally. Who has that time? Five minutes, but I want it to be done every single day and stack it with another habit. Like if you're reading your child books at night, before you read your books, put a timer on your phone, put a song on, whatever. So you have like a time frame, and I want you to just breathe, like just take deep belly breaths. And you can even do this with young kids. And it's really fun. Like pretend like their balloon, their belly is a balloon and just have them pretend like they're expanding their balloon and blowing it up as big as possible. Okay. I need to share something here. Cause I, I taught kids yoga for the longest time and I miss it so much. It doesn't work with my schedule right now, but I will go back eventually. And we did breathing buddies at the end of the session. So they would lie on their back and we had bath toys. So underwater animals or animals that swim or whatever, And we put them on the belly and I would say like, help them swim. You have to help them swim up and down like the wave. So cute. I love that. That's a great tool. Yeah. And they love it. Totally. Like they love their breathing buddies. (laughs) Totally. You can do it with a stuffed animal. You're breathing. Exactly. Literally anything. On your belly and just let them like watch, like see like how far can you make your hands move? Like literally just span their belly. And you'll find that as adults, like we're all breathing up here too. So even as an adult, like put your hands on your belly, make sure you can like make your hands raise, you know, like breathe into your belly, expand that diaphragm, like use your full lung capacity. That helps. You will default into a chest breather if you don't actively work on abdominal breathing. Totally. Totally. So five minutes, stack it with bedtime, just breathe with your kid for five minutes. Okay. Number three. 
consistency and routine. So if you're all over the place and you're chaotic, that can contribute to this anxiety and this environment of anxiety. So like clean up your home, you know, pare things down, get rid of things you need to have a consistent daytime routine. Try to get your kids to wake up at the same time. Try to have them go to sleep at the same time. Try to have your meals at the same time. As much consistency as you can as possible. That lets your kid know what they can expect going into their day. So they're not waking up every single day kind of wondering what, what's today going to be like. What are we going to do today? What's the routine going to be like? Number four, make sure your kids are eating enough protein. Yes! <laughs> it's on my list. I will die on this hill. Totally. Eat more protein. Totally. We're just not doing it. Adults aren't doing it. And because adults aren't doing it, your kids aren't doing it. So I want every single meal or snack to have some form of protein in it. Handful of nuts, nut butter, chia seeds, milk, dairy, yogurt, meat, protein powder, collagen protein, like whatever you have to do, like make sure every single snack and meal has some kind of protein in it. Improve your protein intake. Okay. So, and I know that this is just an industry standard thing. Um, or a compliance thing, but can you quickly speak to, cause I get a lot of questions about, you know, protein powders will say like, don't take this if you're pregnant. Yeah. And I'm like, mm, not really. And you just said kids can have protein powder, obviously yeah. less protein powder and make sure it's good quality. It's never going to be the same dose as parents, but can you just quickly speak to that? Yeah. I am really, really picky around protein powder because I don't like all the synthetic additives and fillers. And a lot of times they will have like very starchy fillers and stuff. So I do recommend whole food based protein powders. Um, and I'm okay with that. Like if it's a whole food based protein powder, mom's not sensitive to whey or doesn't have like a casein allergy or something like that, then I'm totally fine with it during pregnancy. I love, 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 love collagen protein powder. It's not a complete protein, but it can still, it still has the amino acids that you need to support the protein production in the body. And it can make up to 60% of your protein intake of the day. So I'm still fine with collagen protein powder, but yes, I'm okay with it with kids. I'm okay with it. I would prefer you have it from a whole food source, like a meat, an egg, something like that nuts, nut butter, but it can be a supplement to your diet to make sure that you're getting enough and your child is getting enough protein intake for sure. Especially if they're, you know, quote unquote picky eaters and you're working on that, you can mix in some collagen with like their pasta sauce or totally. something the like smoothies that. Smoothies are one of the things that smoothies. parents have like kids. Fruit popsicles with collagen. Popsicles, bone broth popsicles. You can have bone yeah. broth on anything, like literally yeah. anything. And your kid will never know. You'll never know. Like it sounds weird at first, but hide it in anything. Smoothies, pudding. Yeah. You, know, you can make homemade gelatin gummies. Yes. Yes. Yes, absolutely. You can throw it in everything. Okay, amazing. Number five. Number five is eliminate screens as much as possible and social media. So if you have any capacity or control over this for your kids, postpone getting your kid that phone as long as possible. Um, reduce screen time. Even if you can cut it back by 30 minutes a day and like work on eliminating that over time, screens and blue light exposure are definitely the downfall and that can make such a huge impact. So reducing that screen exposure for sure. Amazing. Oh, thank you so much for this conversation. I'm, I say this every time I'm like, I can talk to you forever, but I can because I'm like, I'm obviously anything anxiety. I'm just like, this is my jam. Yeah. Um, and so I just, I'm so happy that we're having this conversation. I'm so happy that I have a resource to point parents to. Um, and I'm sure as I get tons of follow-up questions, I'm going to bring you back on um, because I didn't even get to 
ask about like pans and pandas and and stuff like that, um, which we would need way more time for that. Um, And like gut pathogens and heavy metals and like all of these things. Okay, so there's going to be a part two. (laughs) I'm just saying it now. But for now, where can people find you? Where can people work with you? Can you work internationally? Give us the, the down low. Yeah, I do. I work with people virtually all over the world. I have people in Europe, Canada, everywhere. So I do see virtual patients. You can find me on Instagram at Dr. Kaylee Trombolo. You can find my website at www.c3well.com. Those are kind of the best two ways. Um, And I have all the information in my link in my bios there. So you can find more information about working with me and what that looks like. And I will link all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. This was super fun. I'm glad we got into this conversation. And that is a wrap. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I have one quick favor to ask you before you go. If you love today's episode, I would so appreciate if you left a review on whatever podcast platform you are listening to right now. My goal with this podcast is to reach as many people as possible to spread awareness that anxiety is not this incurable disease. It's not something we just have to live with. It's definitely not just part of your personality. And there are body-based imbalances that need to be addressed in order to truly be free from chronic anxiety. With awareness comes action. And the more people this podcast can reach, the less people will struggle with anxiety. And positive reviews are the number one way to help new people discover the show. You are the best. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you so, so, so much. One last thing, my legal medical disclaimer. The Breaking Up With Anxiety podcast with me, Taylor Jandro, is for general information and educational purposes only. And the advice and recommendations I give or my guests give throughout the episodes do not replace medical advice. The consumption of this podcast does not qualify as a practitioner-client relationship with me, and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. Yes, I am a nutritionist, but I am not your nutritionist. So please discuss any changes with your primary healthcare provider. Okay, that's it. Until the next episode, bye for now.